What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Brandon Kelly, the host of Blue Wire's new podcast, Golden Goal. Messi takes everybody up. Messi has got it! From Lionel Messi to Marta to Pele, our show takes a deep dive into soccer superstars. 2-0, and he's... What a World Cup for Megan Rapinoe! From Zlatan Ibrahimovic's brash confidence with the play to back it up, to Megan Rapinoe's heroic outspokenness and World Cup flair... Each episode examines a personality of the world's game. We'll dig into Maradona's Hand of God performance and subsequent downfall. The teenage trio at Dortmund that signaled the next generation of superstars. And that infamous headbutt that slung Zinedine Zidane from glory. Golden Goal. Soccer stars and the moments that made them. Premiering this summer on Blue Wire. Hey, howdy, hey, Hardwood Knox listeners, that was wildly awkward greeting, you're welcome. I'm Dan Favalli, coming at you with Adam Frommel, the founder and editor-in-chief of NBA Math. Follow him on Twitter, at Frommel09. He's also an editor for Bleacher Report. He's here, which means that we are continuing on with our decade ranking series. We are up to the Miami Heat. Before we get into the top 10 players of the decade for these Heatles, just our usual housekeeping notes. Please, please, pretty please with Sugar on Top, remember to rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you are consuming your podcasts. It also really helps if you go over to iTunes, whether you use it or not, search Hardwood Knox, throw us that five-star rating, and write whatever you review you please. Constructive criticism, compliments, anything that you want. We're reading them. We're monitoring them. It all helps us out. And we appreciate everyone who's done all that. And if you are or have already done all that, we also appreciate any promotions that you can give us, retweeting what we put out on Twitter or telling your friends, family members, acquaintances, randos on the street, or hopefully not on the street. Hopefully you're social distancing. So let me retract that. Randos on social media. Last but certainly not least, shout out to our sponsors this week, betonline.ag. As always, you will be hearing from them in just a minute. Adam, how are you doing? You know, it's funny. I, I feel like I go through this daily mental battle now where I'm like, I'm getting so excited that, that sports are close to being back in some capacity, whether it's baseball or whether it's basketball. But then it's like, are these plans responsible? Like we, we see these positive tests come out every day for these prominent athletes in addition to the, the many people around the country who are continuing to, to test positive as this pandemic rages on. And it's like, how do, how do I feel about this? It's, it's like I go through this every day now. I'm with you, and I think people have conflated the concern or the belief that pro sports shouldn't be returning this year with, oh, you hate the sport that you cover or watch, and maybe you should think about a different line of work. There are some people out there that I, you know, NBA specifically, when you're talking about certain announcers or analysts or writers, where it does genuinely seem like they hate the league. But in this case, I think everyone's just struggling. Paul Pierce. <laughs> oh, sorry. Sorry. 
everyone's just struggling to grapple with, or most I would say are struggling to grapple with the idea that, hey, we really want the NBA back, but is it safe to do so? And if you believe that it's not safe to do so, if you think that the can should be kicked until next season, uh, I would, I think ever, I think that's totally, I think either stance is kind of totally understandable, but we don't need to conflate this concern with a distaste for the sport that we cover. And look, the stakes are high here because you can argue that we all need to get comfortable to some extent living with this virus and with the way we're headed. I think that's absolutely true. But the question still is, can this be done safely? And there's something about sort of just finding out when the rest of the country isn't doing so well, looking at the COVID-19 numbers, that that's really unsettling. And that's that's not even a political stance. I just think it's something to to grapple with. We want sports back, but I, I think it's fair to question whether it's it's safe right now to, to have them back. And, and with the NBA specifically, I think there are, are certain little things about the plan to the, the plan to the best of our knowledge, at least, that just kind of rub you the wrong way, whether it's, you know, it, it's Adam Silver, uh, the commissioner of the league, having the ability to move in and out of the bubble through a, quote, back door that he and Disney employees are going to have access to, or the use of this ring technology that can monitor people um, and, and see whether they're going to be more likely to be infected and and to have complications from the virus when that might that kind of technology might be better used with healthcare providers and healthcare workers and people who are on the front lines working to to combat this pandemic it's just little things it's not knowing what the long term ramifications are going to be are we going to see someone like Zion Williamson if he's infected is he going to have long term lung damage that might hinder his career could something even worse happen there are just so many unknowns that you know, I, I so badly want to watch these guys go play. Um, I so badly want to watch the WNBA. I so badly want to watch MLB. But with these unknowns, it just it still feels so irresponsible. Right. And look, that's the thing is the risk will always be there. And there's the element of you're not going to know what happens until the league tries to play. But the idea of not having basketball for the rest of the season would be that with time, when the season's slated to start, um, in December, let's say, you would be in a better position to to just handle it in general, where it's not so much of a risk to find out if it works. And that's yep. where it comes from. Because both you and I are going to watch basketball when it comes back, and it certainly seems like it's going to come back. I just don't... There, there are some people that seem like they hate the NBA who cover the NBA. I get it. But I don't think it's unfair at this point to think that maybe it's it's too unsafe for the league to try coming back. I also get the stance that how are you going to know whether it's unsafe unless you do come back, except for the fact that when COVID-19 is just still so prevalent in society at large, there does feel there's this element of, of irresponsibility, it feels like, with, with the NBA coming back. And even the optics of if these players are going to be tested daily and regular citizens don't have access to that type of frequent testing how does that make you feel when the numbers are still so bad around the nation? Right. I, th- I think we might see a little bit of, of hate watching to some extent just because people are frustrated that it's back, but also simultaneously happy. It, it might be a little like they hate watched LeBron James when he joined the Miami Heat in 2010. That is that is a great segue into the top 10 Miami Heat of the decade beginning with the 2010. I was, I was proud of that one. Beginning with the 2010-2011 season. Can you provide a just a quick reminder for anyone who's tuning into the first one of these podcasts, how the, the ranking system works. 
Yeah, so we always put out the fan vote where we ask you, um, our listeners, um, our Twitter followers, everyone, to to fill out who you thought were the 10 best, most valuable, however you choose to define it, most important players of the decade for the franchise in question. Then we compile those results um, as one component of our three-pronged system. Um, I have a ballot. Dan has a ballot. We combine those to find a composite top 10. And that is the top 10 with which we're working here. Um, so Udonis Haslam and Justice Winslow both appeared on top 10s for one of those three components. Haslam was number 10 for the fans. He was number nine for me. He did not appear on Dan's ballot. Um, Justice Winslow uh, was ninth for Dan, did not appear for either me or the fans. So they both barely missed the cut. And we actually have a two-way tie for the number nine spot. Uh, the first of those is Jimmy Butler. Um, Butler was up at number seven for the fans. I did not have him. Dan did not have him. And that was pretty much what I expected going in just because current player, current all-star, even in the midst of a really poor shooting season, he's continued to provide so much value with his versatility on both ends. The consistent perimeter defense that he brings, he's really been the, the leader on and off the court of this team that is back in playoff contention, um, for the first time since 2017, 18. Yeah, for him specifically, with the Lakers, it was easy to, easier to include someone like Anthony Davis in their top 10 because of how high he actually ranked on the ladder. And not only some of the advanced metrics, but minutes played. And with Butler, you're talking about someone who ranks outside the top 25 in, in minutes played for the Heat this decade because he hasn't even been there a full season, technically. And when they have other quality options, that that's just why I personally left him off. I still wouldn't argue with someone who would include him he's certainly proven that he can be the best player on a on a quasi contender and there were some questions whether that was possible after how his time in Minnesota ended and then you know Philly being good but but not great with him and the fact that he's sort of answered those skeptics and made it so that the Heat feel like a destination again not that they really ever weren't because we know guys want to play in Miami but now all of a sudden we're talking about why wouldn't free agents want to go with the Heat? It's not only a great market, but they have an up-and-comer in Bam Adebayo, and now they have Jimmy Butler, who is this entrenched top 12, top 15 player, wherever you wherever you put him. So when, if you have an all-NBA type guy, a top 12, 15 guy on your roster for any sort of semi-significant length of time, I totally get the, the impetus to include them in, in this exercise within the top 10. I'm not going to criticize anyone who includes him. I think seven might be a little bit too high. Um, he did rise as high as third on some ballots. Personally, I went with Haslam um, as my back of the ballot inclusion just because of how much he's meant to this franchise. I think that his value has gone well beyond the the fairly limited on-court contributions towards the back end of his career. But he's been that consistent locker room presence, that consistent veteran mentor, that conscience of the franchise. And he's just been so vital to that team that, you know, there's, there's talk about an eventual Jersey retirement, even though he hasn't really touched an all-star level in quite some time. Um, so that was more of the sentiment route. I, I, I do think that despite the limited time, there is an objective case for Jimmy Butler, but really this franchise, which over the last decade, we saw the Heatles era where they were just so dominant. And then they fell off as soon as LeBron left. And they've been kind of this fringe playoff team that's that's rising and, and that's led to, to so many names that I think you could justify including in some capacity, whether it's Shane Battier or Mike Miller or Justice Winslow or Haslam or Jimmy Butler or Dion Waiters, maybe even Kendrick Nunn, um, because or Tyler Harrow, because they they've been so good as rookies. Um there are there are a lot of options and it's hard to hold any against and, and any against any of the voters here. 
Yeah, and look, Giannis hasn't made sense just because of the longevity. He survived more iterations than the Heat uh, of the Heat than Dwayne Wade at this point. Uh, I went with Ray Allen as my back of the ballot pick just because he, there, if you want to put him a little higher, that's fine. If you wanted to leave him off, though, is probably where I'd take issue. If you look at you know Shane Batty and Mike Miller, two names that I considered, um, looking at Shane Battier's defense when the Heat won their first title, or looking at Mike Miller going off in some in some playoff games. I tried to consider would the Heat have still won those games or those series or that title if uh, those players weren't there? And I came to the answer of yes. For the most part, Battier might be a little bit debatable. With Ray Allen, you can't come to that conclusion because he hit one of the biggest shots in NBA history to put the Heat in a position to force Game Seven and and win uh, their second straight championship. And what happens if Miami doesn't win that title? There's just, I feel like there are so many ramifications. Maybe people say, well, it doesn't matter. LeBron ends up leaving basically a year later, but there might've been just some off-season trades or, or some, I don't even know if that was the year that LeBron has first player option. I don't think it was, that was after four years. So, but there, maybe you look at making some weird trades. Is Chris Bosh all of a sudden on the move from there? What does it just do to LeBron's legacy in general? That was such a huge shot. It was tough for me to leave Ray Allen off, even though I didn't necessarily think that he deserved to be any higher because I'm not sure his, just looking at what he can do as a floor spacer. Uh, he was a liability on defense though. By the time he got to Miami, it, it feels like I can't put him any higher, but I definitely wasn't going to leave him off this list either. Right. Ray Allen actually did appear in all three components. He he was tied with, uh, with Jimmy Butler for ninth. He was, he was ninth for the fans. He was 10th for both you and I. And really it was, it was that one shot that, that did it for me. I mean, game six of the 2013 finals. And I, I think anyone who watched that remembers exactly where they were when he backpedaled into the corner and, and hit that three over the Tony Parker closeout. Um, after an offensive rebound and and forced overtime after you know the yellow ropes had already come out after the 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 heat fans in attendance had already basically vacated the arena. Uh, i was I was watching it in uh, the first apartment that I had out in Colorado, and I, I remember that I, I was watching it by myself and yelled so loudly that I woke up my next door neighbor who came and knocked on my door to make sure that I was okay. And it was just <laughs> it was just like one of those moments where, you know, how could you not react that way? And I, I think because it was so obvious that that wasn't just like some fluke shot. It wasn't like, you know, Derek Fisher knocking down a, a three-pointer with 0.4 seconds left in a playoff game. But like th- this was a moment that Ray Allen had uniquely prepared for. You know, we, we've heard the stories about him training with a drill that he made up where he would lay down in the paint, face down, have to get up and backpedal into the corner. He knew how to time his steps and how to orient himself to make sure that he didn't step out out of bounds to make sure that he got behind the arc in that little tiny space in the corner and like just the the legacy that that shot has and the impact that it has the ramifications that it has that you touched on like that that moment alone was enough to justify Allen's inclusion even if he'd done nothing else for the heat shout out Chris Bosh for grabbing that off as a rebound too and shout out Greg Popovich for subbing out Tim Duncan <sighs> That's a whole other conversation. (laughs) Attention Hardwood Knox listeners. There is no shortage of action going on at our exclusive partners, betonline.ag. Sports are slowly making their way back, and BetOnline is leading the way with the best odds and lines for all UFC, NASCAR, boxing, and soccer matches. And if you need even more, they have simulated NFL, NBA, and UFC events all day, every day, live on their website. 
Looking for something else other than sports? BetOnline has hundreds of casino games, poker tournaments, and prop bets to check out. Visit BetOnline.ag and use promo code BLUEWIRE, all one word, for a free welcome bonus. That's one word, BLUEWIRE. BetOnline, your online wagering experts. Can you take us to the number eight player? I can. Uh, number eight is Josh Richardson. Uh, he did not appear on the fans' top ten. He just barely missed out on that final slot to Udonis Haslam. Uh, but he was seventh for both you and I. I, I know you've always been a huge fan of, of Josh Richardson's two-way game, just that you know he's he's been a switchable defender. He's been a guy who can create his own shot or work off the ball. And even if he's not quite ascended to the level of stardom that we might have expected when he was an up-and-comer, like it, it's pretty obvious that he's been a valuable player. Yeah, I love Josh Richardson. He's had some struggles in Philly, but just looking at him as more of a, a complimentary player, someone who can defend positions one through four, really, the, the heat more liberally through him at power forwards than we've seen with the Sixers. They really tried to stretch his shot creation abilities, and look, they're there. If you want to have him run situational pick and rolls, hit some pull-up jumpers, he can do that, but he's really just best served as someone who can uh, move off the ball, is going to hit open shots. He still can attack closeouts and and so I he's a very well-rounded player and what he does on defense though I don't think is fully appreciated enough he's never really in the uh mentioned as often in the all defense conversation and he could be there in in any given year this year don't think he stayed healthy enough but Josh Richardson I feel like is if you're a really good team if you're a championship contender uh, we say this a lot about certain players like a Patrick Beverly just feels like he'd be a universal fit for any really good team Josh Richardson is that type of of wing because it's not it's he he's even more he has more universality to his game than even a, a Robert Covington where I think people look at him as this plug and play three and D guy and and he is but Josh Richardson also provides you with functional shooting on the offensive end I'm talking about someone who can actually move um, shoot off the move or or really um, you know go through handoffs he's going to be able to to score off the dribble and so when you're plug and play while also providing that functional shooting it's sort of like he doesn't do what JJ Redick does but that's what JJ Redick is is he's not just a shooter he's a functional shooter and now you combine that with Josh Richardson's defense and you just have one hell of a player and so I've always been a huge fan of his game and I'm a little bit surprised actually that the fans uh, just knowing how he's sort of identified as one of those you know heat diamond in the roughs that they were able to mine I'm surprised that the fans didn't have him in their top 10. Yeah, I think it's easy to forget how much time he spent with the Heat. I mean, he's seventh in minutes played. He he checks the Vernus box. But just because of of how he he rose to the level that that he's reached, you know, after a four-year career at Tennessee, he was only the 40th pick in the 2015 draft. He didn't play that much as a rookie. He really struggled as a sophomore. Um, only shot 33% um, on three-pointers, only shot 39.4% from the field. Um, but he just gradually continued to improve. And I, I, I think in some of the the less obvious areas too, like if you look at it, the, the playmaking strides that he's made throughout his career, he entered the league as a guy who didn't pass that much. He was trying to make the most himself of, of the possessions that he did receive, but gradually improved his assist numbers, improved the the trust that, that Eric Spolstra had in him running, running pick and rolls, running uh, transition possessions without making mistakes. I'm always a huge fan of guys who can pass without turning the ball over. Um, just, you know, those mistake-free passers who still manage to remain aggressive. It's not a lack of mistakes because you're not trying things. It's a lack of mistakes because you're trying the right things. And Josh Richardson seemed to increasingly uh, fill that that niche throughout his time in Miami. 
Yeah, and look, how about the 2015 draft in the second round? Just looking at the players that came out of it, Montrezl Harrell was there as well. Josh Richardson, obviously, Rashawn Holmes, Norman Powell. That was Pat Connaughton, even. We thought Willie Hernan Gomez was going to be good for, for a hot second. There's You would have to go back and look at this, but that feels like one of the... We've seen these great players come out of the second round, but I wonder if if any recent second round has yielded so many quality impact impact players in the same draft. I actually think we're about to have one of those. Ooh. I think that this this 2020 draft, I think we're going to see a lot of guys taken late um, who are going to, to have a lot of experience playing at the college level, and teams are starting to value those four-year contributors more and more. And there are just a lot of names that I like who are, are projected at this moment to go in that in that second round, guys like Xavier Tillman or Cassius Stanley or Killian Tilly or uh, or Grant Riller, um, Marcus Howard. You know, I, I feel like this this 2020 draft for all the the criticism that it gets at the top, justified criticism because of the lack of guaranteed star power. It's I, I feel like it's a little deeper than people realize. Not as, to veer too far off topic. As someone who has watched sub 60 minutes of draft film so far this year, knowing that it's not going to happen until. What is it, 2025 at this point or something? I feel qualified to say that I totally agree with you. I, I think that's absolutely fair. And you should go watch Grant Riller highlights because he's my one of my favorite players in the draft. Who do we have coming in at number seven? At number seven, we have Mario Chalmers. Um, he was number eight on the fan ballot. He was number eight for me. And you had him all the way up at number five. Um, I, I feel like people sell Chalmers short if only because of the reputation that he developed during his time in Miami, which is just this punching bag. Like you couldn't watch more than two games without seeing LeBron yelling at Chalmers in some capacity. I, I think that superseded the the contributions that he brought, like the three-point shooting, the the ability to serve as that secondary playmaker despite running the point, you know, the, the big shots that he made. Um, he was never a glamorous contributor, but he was a consistently good one. And look, he, he worked his butt off on defense too. And that's part of the reason I had him so high is he was able to contribute while just being uh, LeBron James's punching bag, essentially. 50 so actually, minutes played too. Yeah. So I, I think that, that the longevity, even that anecdote that you mentioned, and then look, it's hard. He played a ball dominant position by being anything but. And if we're going to give sort of Patrick Beverly kudos for that, I'm not comparing the two on defense, if that's how anyone takes this. If you want to give players props for uh, pl- playing these hybrid roles or, or playing a role that really isn't synonymous with the position that they're supposed to play, it's not really easy. And so for someone that they could really count on, he hit some big shots in the playoffs. He played some big postseason minutes for them. It never He didn't defend like he was 6'2". It always felt like he was a little bit bigger to me. And so I had no qualms about when you, when you factor in the longevity as well, I had no qualms about putting him at, at number five. He was all over the place in the fan ballot. He, uh, he didn't appear on about a quarter of ballots, but he rose as high as fourth on some. Um, his most common placement was eighth. So he was, he was just all over the place, which I, I felt was, was pretty appropriate. Um, I, I still have trouble moving him over the next two guys that we're going to talk about. Um, but I, I get it just because of his importance to those title winning teams. Well, then who, who is the first of those next two guys? 
The first of those next two guys is Bam Adebayo. Um, he was sixth for both me and the fans, and you had him down at number eight, which really caught me by surprise because he's another guy I've, I've always thought that you were a really big fan of. I Look, Bam Adebayo is really good. I question whether he alone can anchor a really good defense just because things can get spotty if he is your primary backline defender. But if you give me a big that can move his feet like he can. I'm, I'm going to fall in love with him. And just knowing what he could do on offense, setting running sets in the half court, bringing the ball up the floor, uh, can be crafty with his back to the basket. My whole thing is this is his first season with real minutes. And so I'm going to you know, sort of defer to you know players like Richardson, uh, even Whiteside or Mario Chalmers, Dragic, who who have just more extensive resumes with the Heat. And I you can't penalize a player necessarily for their role. And it was very clear last year that Bam Adebayo should have been playing more minutes from the jump. Uh, but while the advanced metrics love him, the, the fact of the matter for, for me is that this is just his first season with serious minutes and he still falls outside the top 10 in total minutes played. I mean, Norris Cole has played more minutes for the Heat this decade than, than Bam Adebayo. And look, that's not to just work against him. I'm just trying to justify why I put a guy like Richardson, Chalmers, and, and Whiteside in front of him. Can you make an argument that he's been the Heat's best player this year? No, I couldn't just because I don't think he means nearly as much to their offense as Jimmy Butler and Jimmy Butler means more to their defense as well, too, to me. I, I Maybe it's debatable. I myself couldn't begin to, to outline a case for it, though. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I, I think it's somewhat close, even, the, if, even if I would have Butler above him, just because of that versatility that he brings. And, and yeah, it's... Maybe within the context of the team, it's easy to see how Butler is so much more valuable. But in terms of like team construction, I think it's easier to find a guy like Butler than it is to find a guy like Adebayo right now. Um, just because he's he's like the future of the center position here, right? Like he he checks every single box that you're looking for in a modern center. Maybe with the exception of three point shooting, which it seems like he's on the cusp of showing. He's taken 13 this year. He's only made one, but He's he's taken a lot of longer twos. He's starting to tease out those portions of his game, and you know, just seeing him operate on the perimeter with the ball, running, running breaks, running sets, um, and then defending on the perimeter. It just it, it feels like he he does everything that you want in a in a modern day center, and that's that's hard to find, and every team covets it right now. I would say. I- Bam and Bio is more of an anomaly relative to his position at this point. And while Jimmy Butler might be more common when you look at his style, because that's how you want wings to play, he feels like more of the overall anomaly. And if you want to say Bam and Bio is more important to the Heat's defense, I totally get that and I'll accept that. But you know, when Jimmy Butler plays without Bam Adebayo this season, the Heat have an offensive rating in the 93rd percentile. And Bam Adebayo, if you reverse that, plays without Jimmy Butler, he have an offensive rating in the 34th percentile. And that might say to me. It just feels like wings or primary ball handlers, um, the guys who are going to, to face up and can score that way, they're always going to have inherently more influence over the offense. And by extension, that's going to make them more important. It can change in certain situations. I think you can argue Carl Anthony Towns in Minnesota. Uh, Bam Adebayo just isn't close to that level offensively just yet. And like you said, he's sort of teased the outside parts of, of his game looking at his shooting. So if that comes along, uh, per- perhaps he gets there. But right now, I think it's pretty clear that Jimmy Butler is more important to the Heat. Mm-hmm. So another question kind of related to Adebayo and kind of moving on to number five. Does it surprise you that Hassan Whiteside, who checks in at number five, appeared above Bam Adebayo in all three components? 
He was fifth to to, uh, to Bam sixth for the fan vote. He was fifth for me to sixth um, for Bam. And for you, uh, he checked in at six and Bam was at eight. Does that surprise you that he was across the board above? It doesn't surprise me across the board because one, there's, there's the longevity. And maybe that matters more right. if I were looking at both what you and I were going to do for the fans. And this isn't, this isn't an insult to anybody because I can be box score jaw dropped at any point too. Hassan Whiteside's numbers just stand out more. You know, if you're going to see someone who averages 17 points and 14 rebounds and two blocks, it's just, it's going to stand out more a little bit. And so when you couple that with his longevity and then also how he's just, he's another heat success story in that he's not, he was drafted 33rd overall by the Kings in 2010. And it kind of flamed out of the NBA by the time he really got to Miami. And so he's more of an underdog in that sense than Bam Adebayo was as a first round pick. I think that all, all matters in, in the discussion. Do I think that Bam Adebayo is going to end up being the better overall player, the more valuable easily. player? Yes. I think it will rather easily. easily. And look, there are fair questions about how, how valuable Hassan Whiteside was to the Miami heat at points, just because his demeanor was often criticized uh, their offense was, it happened a lot pretty frequently where it was better with him off the court. And then how much, you know, particularly towards the end, the defense sometimes almost went unchanged with or without him on the court. And so if you're going to have someone who's just this premier shot blocker and considered a rim protector, you would like that, particularly on the defensive side, the differential to be more pronounced and certainly at least in his favor, not, not against it. And so just had, he had a very complicated uh, relationship with his with his tenure, when you look back on it, when it was in the moment earlier on, I think you could appreciate it because he was just giving you um, production you never expected. Once you signed that contract in 2016, I think it was, with that 2017, I can't even remember right now, those off seasons blur together. But once you signed that big money contract, and it, it must have been 2016, because it was a four year deal. Once you signed that big money contract, you know, 2016, 2017, that kind of felt for him like a sweetheart year, but it was downhill from there where you didn't really see him playing as much where there were rumors coming out that he was unhappy with his role. And then by last season specifically, it felt like the heat sort of knew that Bam Adebayo was going to be the better player and, and was their future, but you couldn't do anything with Hassan Whiteside until the off season. And look, he had good years in Miami. I just think Bam Adebayo is going to end up being better overall. And the sample size that we've seen though, I feel like you pretty clearly have to give the edge to him. I really had no idea where Whiteside was going to fall in the fan balloting just because of that that complicated relationship that that he had between stats and winning right you know we saw it early on when he would get a triple double and talk about how his 2k rating needed to go up like his obsession I, I think, with shooting threes yeah and there there were so many intriguing elements to his game those elbow jumpers that he seemed to make pretty consistently as he was carving out a bigger role with Miami that that sort of went away later in his heat tenure, the leading the league in, in block shots per game with 3.7 during the 2015-16 season, being a consistent double-double threat, being one of the better rebounders in the NBA. But at the same time, he chased rebounds. He chased blocks at the expense of defensive positioning. Like He was like the poster boy for the, the idea that blocks didn't necessarily equal good rim protection. Um, it, it, it felt like he was always a difficult player to evaluate because he was putting up such massive numbers and and showing up fairly prominently in a lot of analytical senses, but it didn't always equate to winning. And, um, and he puts 
a cap on your offense a little bit. And we've seen it in Portland where he can't do the same short rolls or those quick passes that Yusuf Nurkic made. And so he's fine as sort of this, I call him a rim jogger, rim jogger, because it never really seems like he's uh, blitzing towards the basket, but he's definitely useful in that role. But if he wants to post up more, if you need him to do more as a passer or someone who can hit shots on these short rolls, those limitations are just, they're there. That's fine. Uh, But if we were to look at their careers in totality when they both retire, I think we end up saying that Bam Adebayo had the substantively more impactful career. You know, what's what's surprising to me about Whiteside, though, is that the Heat are so good at getting the best out of players. Eric Spolstra is so good at using every single player under his purview in the right way. And they did manage to turn Whiteside into something special. You know, after he was a second round pick in 2010, after he'd flamed out with the Kings and they really resurrected his career. But at the same time, like when was the last time we saw a player go elsewhere and be more successful? And I feel like that's what's happened in Portland this year where, you know, he still has some of those stat chasing tendencies. He still pursues blocks in the wrong situation sometimes, but it also feels like he's playing with more effort, with more intelligence and with more desire for the trailblazers than he did with the heat. And it's just so strange to me because usually that's reversed when Miami's involved. Right. Let's see how he deals with maybe not starting though, behind Yusuf Nurkic once the season resumes. I think that's also fair Could to see. Be interesting. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, so trivia question related to Hassan Whiteside. Uh, where does he rank in heat history for total blocks? That's and it. can you oh. name who's ahead of him? All right, so there's somebody ahead of him. Uh, I'm going to say he's third. You're correct. Okay. Now can you name both of them? Oh, absolutely not. Alonzo Mourning? Number one with more than twice as many as anyone else. By one, actually. Shout out to Zoe. I'm not going to get the other one, am I? He has 1,625 blocks in his career, Alonzo Mourning. Whiteside had 783. Shaq can't possibly be on there, Kenny. Shaq is sixth. Good for Shaq. I got I got nothing. You're gonna have to spoil who the other one is for me. Well, he's 29 blocks ahead of ahead of Whiteside, despite playing 624 more games for the Heat, and it is the greatest shot blocking guard of all time. No. Dwayne Wade has more blocks with the Heat than Whiteside. Wow. Yep. I feel like that's actually something that I should have gotten. Yeah, I don't actually think it's that surprising just because he's always been a good shot blocker out of the backcourt and he spent so much time with the Heat. I, I mean, am... Haslam is the only guy who's even close in games played in Heat franchise history. Did you map out this trivia question well in advance? No, I literally this, this... came up with it as you were talking. All right. That's impressive. That's a fun one. Yeah, yeah. But let's move on to number four. And it is a guy who ranks, hold on, hold on, hold on, 47th in blocks in Heat history. That's 61. actually not bad. Top 50? 61. Top 50. And that is Goran Dragic, noted shot blocker. Um, from this point forward, the, the components were unanimous. Um, Dragic appeared in fourth place uh, for the fans, for me, and for Dan. And that will also be true of our top three. So I'll stop saying their individual component scores. But yeah. Goran Dragic, uh, one of the the more enjoyable players to watch because of his uh, his fearlessness attacking the basket, his incredible 
finishing ability. I, I feel like that's the first thing you have to associate with him is just, you know, this is a guy who's who's six foot three, who doesn't even play anywhere close to above the rim, but he always seemed to convert shots on the interior. Yeah, he, 65.6% shooting for his career inside three feet, and that's while factoring in his disastrous rookie campaign where he shot 42.3% from, from that close range. And I mean, if you sort of remove that from the equation, he's at 66.3% inside three feet for his career. And it look it helps that he always kind of had that, maybe not so much anymore, but he's really slippery off the dribble. And then someone who can hit those, yes, he can hit those off the dribble jumpers, but he's also going to hit those standstill threes as well. And it makes him very plug and play on the offensive end. You do kind of have to worry about him on defense though. And that's where- I would say more than kinda. So you have to tailor your personnel more specifically, where he doesn't work in every lineup, but if you were concerned just about offense, he absolutely could. Were you at all surprised that he ended up being consensus for four? I thought after the top three that maybe there would have been some some wiggle room, or did you just always expect going in for, for him to finish fourth? I thought it was a pretty obvious position, and it really seems like he's kind of hovering between tiers, where there was... There was some flux in the fan balloting between the five and seven spots with Whiteside, Adebayo, and Butler. Um, but Drogic was basically alone and fourth. On almost every ballot, he was either fourth or fifth. Um, but because of the variety of players who people had above him in that fourth spot when he did appear at number five, you know, he was never going to be in the top three. He did appear there on one ballot. Um, but yeah, it, it seemed like that was just his his preordained position, just as that offensive dynamo who can score from all three levels has that smooth lefty stroke that slippery ball handling but didn't do anything on defense and has been there for a while yeah he's been here more than half the decade which is which is just kind of bizarre to think about it seems like just yesterday that everyone was debating whether the heat should give up two first round picks for him and then you look and you're like oh that was that was in 2015 that was a pretty long time ago it was. Yeah. I mean, it's it's hard to believe that it's been that much time since we had that three-headed Eric Bledsoe, Isaiah Thomas, Goran Dragic experiment in Phoenix that was doomed from the start because Phoenix. Yeah, I think that's the best way to put it, because Phoenix. And he look, he was he had a monstrous 2016-2017 season. I know that he didn't make the playoffs that year, but... It is a travesty that he was not an all-star that year. Yeah. Uh, and that, that was the season where they went bonkers in the second half, right? Of the, of the year. So... Yep. Huge part of that. But I deserving number four, I just thought there might have been less of a consensus there. Yeah. No there was there was definitely a consensus there, but there was even more of a consensus for the number three spot. Um, you know, there was there was some debate for the fans, not so much between you and I for for number one and number two, but everyone had Chris Bosch in the third spot. And, and for good reason. I mean, he was never as important to those teams as LeBron James and Dwayne Wade were, but like, were you really going to put him below Drogic, below Whiteside, below Butler or Adebayo? Like, come on. Do you remember that p- people turned against him by the, basically the, or at points during the, the Heat tenure, where it was that he had to go or that he was somehow holding them back when it was really the way he played and the, the concessions that he made on offense that really allowed them to exist the best way that they right. needed to. You know, LeBron at the four can't really happen unless you can have Chris Bosh at the five and he does so much look his shooting numbers weren't great at the time when he was firing threes but if you don't have him sort of stretching the floor it makes a job of the offense a lot harder and then he was always just rock solid defensively he was a pretty good rim protector and the fact that he could stand up against 
certain fives, but that you're also using him at the four for the first two seasons. Just a very good player. And I think a lot of what he did ended up getting lost in the haze that was LeBron James and Dwayne Wade. Right. And, and first and foremost, Chris Bosh is just a treasure of a human being. Just like he was always entertaining. The the memes that, that resulted from his time in Miami, the 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 exuberance the with which he played. He's the fir- he's the reason that I learned the word photobomb exists. Right. Right. Um, and he had some incredible ones during his time at South Beach. But I mean I think he needs so much more credit than he gets for accepting that third wheel role. He was an absolute star with the Toronto Raptors and just had to completely change his game from the get-go. During his final season with the Raptors, he required assists on 49.8% of his made shots. That number rose to 60.3% during his first season with the Heat. Throughout his first playoff uh, playoff run with LeBron and Dwayne Wade, that actually elevated to 65.2%. He became so much more of a complimentary figure and had to completely change the way he played on offense and on defense. He hadn't played much center with Toronto. He had to suddenly start playing center, as you mentioned, to make those lineups with LeBron at the four work. And as Eric Spolster said, after the 2012 title, like that is what took the team to another level. Um, direct quote is that really took our team to another level because of his speed, his skill set. He could defend multiple positions, but as a center, he became one of the tougher covers in the league. He really had to sacrifice quite a bit and get out of his comfort zone and things that he was used to in Toronto. I'm still not sure if that decision will ultimately help or hurt his long-term legacy because he did have to sacrifice those individual numbers, those individual accolades for the betterment of the team. It allowed him to get championships. It allowed him to to write his name in the history books that way. But that is a sacrifice that not many players of his caliber were willing, have been willing, will be willing to make. We saw it with Kevin Love in Cleveland where there, there was some strife there with his transition. That just didn't, and maybe it's because social media and leagues weren't as prevalent then, but that just didn't seem to exist with with Bosch. And so he deserves all the credit in the world. And, and look, that first year without LeBron, though he only appears in 44 games, it, it was sort of this reminder of how good he actually was. He puts up through his 44 appearances, 21.1 points, 7 rebounds, 2.2 assists, is shooting 37.5% from, from distance. That was his age 30 season, and if not for the the blood clot issues, who knows how he ends up closing out that year. So he was really reestablishing himself as one of those premier all-stars, and that's a status that he surrendered when he signed with the Heat. And you're absolutely right that not only would very few players make that concession, even fewer would do so when they're just in the thick of their prime. We're talking about his age 26 season when he went to Miami. Bosch had to retire after his age 31 season. I mean, the retirement itself happened well after that, just because he he wanted to make that comeback and wasn't able to because of the blood clotting issues. But in his final season, you know, operating as as more of a solo star there, 19.1 points and 7.4 rebounds, still shooting the ball efficiently from every level. If he had stayed healthy and played another, let's say, four or five seasons in Miami, do you think there's any chance that we could have been talking about him in one of the top two spots. Ooh. Yeah, I, I I would say so. Just because Dwayne Wade, not only did he leave for a second, but uh, he also kind of had those just reduced production seasons where maybe Bosch wouldn't 
have had those. I mean, now we're talking 2015, 2016 is is a world ago. So you're actually talking about what four se- three seasons now of separation between that four seasons actually. So maybe he's kind of in that same boat. It would have been tough to overcome the emotional attachment that Miami has to Dwayne Wade and, and rightfully so. But his case for the number two spot, if he'd been playing at the level he did in the first two years that LeBron left through this exercise or up until it, whatever, he'd probably have a pretty good case for number two. I agree. But but as it stands, Dwayne Wade was was the pretty obvious and consensus number two. Um, I know you just said uh, a second back that he spent a minute away from the heat. I refuse to acknowledge that that happened. Um, I'm wiping his Chicago Bulls tenure and brief Cleveland Cavaliers tenure from Chica- the history Chicago books. He is a happened. heat lifer. It's Cleveland that you're lifer. free to wipe off the ledger. He will always be a heat lifer. He never wore another uniform. He's going to go down in the history books that way because I want him to. For anyone that had him number one, I'd just be a little bit curious what the justification is there. Maybe it's the pure, purely the longevity because there's kind of this noticeable drop-off from him after that 2010-2011 campaign where he's playing fewer minutes as my phone goes off everywhere. He's playing fewer minutes. Um, they had like these maintenance programs in place where he was going to play in, in fewer games, and he just wasn't at the, the same level. Still a really good player, but LeBron would clearly be a cut or or five above him. And I guess when you look at the just the season spent there discrepancy where we're talking about four seasons for LeBron and you look at Wade and now all of a sudden you're at eight, that definitely that has to matter. So it's twice as many seasons there. I just I still would question why there would be so many people who did list him at number one. Uh, yeah, I think it has to be the the import to the franchise. I mean this is this is an organization and a city to which he meant so much that you know we, we briefly saw Dade County renamed Wade County. You know, like that 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 kind of thing has to matter. The longevity has to matter. Playing four thousand more minutes, but they were at at a significantly lower level than LeBron's. I mean, LeBron is number one. I think everyone knew that. Um, but even though he only spent four seasons with the Heat during this decade, like those four seasons were incredible. Uh, the 2012-13 season in particular, I think you can you can make a convincing argument, and I believe we have on on some of these podcasts that that was the best season that he's played in his entire NBA career. Um, just where everything clicked, where he was seeing the court so well, where he was taking threes and making threes, um, where just everything worked for an absolute juggernaut of a team. It would have been easy. When you're operating in a big three alongside two other obvious Hall of Fame talents in Wade and Bosch to kind of fade into the background a little bit more than he did. But despite being but one member of that triumvirate, he was so obviously the leader and the best player on a consistent championship contender that I, I for me, it was like, a, OK, I'm filling up this ballot. Let me throw LeBron into the number one spot, Wade into the number two, Bosch into the number three. Not even going to give any of those a second thought. Yeah, that 2012-2013 year from LeBron, absolutely ridiculous. First team All-NBA, first team All-Defense, League MVP, Finals MVP, just really one of those clean sweeps. And as just like everything you outlined for him, that, that year is the one that comes to mind for me more so than any other one when you're talking about the, the best version of LeBron James. And look, also, despite uh, you know his spending significantly less time there he's he's just by far and away the the Miami Heat leader in value over replacement player um 
through his four seasons with the Heat, and you just look at how how important he was to what that franchise became. I know people say that everyone wanted to play in Miami, but he sort of turned the Heat into this even greater hot spot by by going there. It seemed to really open the floodgates for well, why wouldn't you go to Miami? There's you know, you're not going to have to pay state state income tax, and uh, it's a great place to live. And you know now Dwayne Wade isn't there, and that still sort of carries on. And look, Dwayne Wade has played a huge role in that. I don't want to get that twisted. I mean, he played Miami probably doesn't get LeBron with without Dwayne Wade, which is something else to consider. And maybe that's part of the argument in favor of D Wade being number one is that do you have LeBron with without Dwayne Wade there? But leader in win shares for this team too, even though he spent only four years there. Uh, and it's by a mile, 65.3 to Dwayne Wade's 46.3 in the number two spot. So I didn't even think twice about putting him him number one. So my my one outstanding question for you before we move on to the honorable mentions is in the next decade, where do you think Giannis is going to rank? That's rude. That would have been better for the Raptors pod, I feel like. <laughs> Maybe we'll do it again there. Yeah. So uh, Giannis will probably rank. Giannis is staying in Milwaukee. That was my hot take. I, I hope so. I, I hope we just so. picked up a few bucks listeners by me making that prediction. <laughs> you ready for the honorable mentions? I hope so. Uh, there there really weren't any terrible ones here, honestly. I thought you were um, going to say there really weren't any honorable mentions. <laughs> no, we had uh, 28 different people appear on the ballot. So outside the top 10 from the fan vote, we had Josh Richardson at 11, Justice Winslow at 12, Mike Miller at 13, Ray Allen at 14, Shane Battier at 15, Kendrick Nunn at 16, Dion Waiters at 17, uh, a three-way tie between Kelly Olynyk, Richard Lewis, and Tyler Johnson at 18, uh, we had Chris Anderson, the Birdman, at 21, James Johnson at 22, Tyler Harrow at 23, James Jones at 24. Uh, he was tied with Derek Jones Jr. And then a three-way tie between Duncan Robinson, Luol Dang, and Norris Cole, who all appeared once in the 10 spot. Is there like a Kendrick Nunn fan page that follows NBA Math on Twitter? There might be. That's I mean, we did. We've had we've had like Shelvin Mack fan clubs and all sorts of random things happen. So that's a that's one time Orlando me. Magic assist leader Shelvin Mack to you. That's right. That's right. I need to give him more respect in all things. Well, that'll do it for this podcast. Next time we're coming at you, we'll have the top ten Milwaukee Bucks of the decade. If you would like to participate in that, we strongly encourage it. The poll is live at NBA math, go follow NBA math on Twitter at NBA underscore math. Also make sure you're following Adam on Twiddle, Twiddle at Frommel zero nine on Twitter. And until next time I leave everybody with the shout out to Miami heat living legend, Eric Dampier. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, marvelous Marvin Hagler and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.